Good morning. I want to thank the session of New Life and uh, your pastor for allowing me to be here today and to be able to uh, share the Word of God with you. And um, I wanted to take just a moment to acknowledge my wife in the back. That's my wife, Sandy. And uh, one of my dear friends and board members of my parachurch ministry, John Frolander, they've come up and we really appreciate you making us feel welcome today. And so we're going to have an interesting discussion today around God's word. And here's the question. Does God have a favorite Bible verse? Hmm, everyone, hmm. Well, let's find out what the Word of God says today. If I were to ask you, what is your favorite Bible verse, which one would you pick? Depending on your theology, you'd probably be tempted to think, oh, I know what God's favorite Bible verse. It's my favorite Bible verse. Well, maybe, maybe not. If you were raised Baptist, you would know immediately, what, what is it? John 3.16, right? If you were raised Catholic, you would know immediately it's Matthew 16, 18, where it says, You, Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. If you're a Presbyterian, you would know it's Romans 8, 28, right? So, there's an interesting Bible verse app out there called YouVersion. It has millions of users, and all around the world, people are logging on to that application. And, oh, it's interesting... They did a little study of the verse that was most downloaded, the verse that was most highlighted, the verse that was most uh, bookmarked, and it was surprising to me. You know what it was? Tens of millions of people find Romans 12.2 to be their favorite Bible verse. Do you know that one? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I didn't expect that. So uh, the question, though, isn't what's our favorite Bible verse. The question is, what's God's favorite Bible verse? But before we jump into that, let's affirm a couple of things just so I don't get in trouble with the presbytery. The first thing we have to affirm is that God and his word are one. Amen? Okay, And because God and his word are one, his word accurately and faithfully reveals who he truly is. And because God is truth, we know that every word of God is true. And because God is just, we know all of his commandments are righteous and true. And because God is faithful, we know that every promise that God makes will no doubt come to pass. So in that sense, every word of God is infallible and inerrant. If you will, his word is his oath. Every word of God is important. And because it's God's word, it's invested with divine authority and power. That's why in 2 Timothy 3, what does Timothy say? He says, all scripture is profitable. So we're not red letter Christians. We're not New Testament Christians. We're Bible Christians. Why? We believe that all of the scriptures, the whole counsel of God, reveal who God is. So then, in what sense then do we dare assert that God has a favorite verse? And if we were to assert that, how would we know which one would it be? Is there an 
unbiased, objective way to know this. Well, let me ask you a question. How do I know if you have a favorite song or a favorite Thanksgiving dessert, right? Or a thanks or, or a book. Why? How do we know? Because you go to it all the time. You repeat it. You you listen to it. Some of you have songs memorized. Yesterday, uh, don't hold this against me. I was watching YouTube videos, and this this little video had probably two million hits. And it was a guy didn't know he was being filmed, but I guess he was at some sporting event. He's way up in the bleachers. And a Michael Jackson song breaks out. Now, this guy's got to be 50 years old, bald, you know, a pot belly. But he knew the words. He not only knew the words, he knew the moves. And he was busting some moves up in the... St- and Why? Because obviously he had taken time. That was one of his favorite songs. He had memorized the words. He memorized the lyrics. He even knew the choreography. So we know... When something is meaningful to us, we repeat it. We, we find ourselves thinking about it. We're humming the, the tune. We, we know the lyrics. Did you know that God has Bible verses on his repeat function on his iPod? Everyone's got their iPod out, right? So on his playlist, he's got some verses that he repeats. For example... One verse that shows up seven times in the New Testament, which is pretty uh, significant, is one you would probably recognize. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're going to use frequency as a standard of deciding which verse is God's favorite, then there's clearly only one. There's only one that we can say, this is certainly the Lord's favorite. This verse is quoted or alluded to 23 times in the New Testament. 11 out of 27 of the New Testament books refer to it. Seven of the New Testament authors use it. And it's even quoted by our Lord himself. So if God repeats it this many times, certainly It deserves our attention. And what is that verse? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is one of the most amazing, prophetic, messianic psalms in the entire Bible. Written some 800 years before the birth of Christ. And yet, it so accurately and faithfully depicts and declares the ministry of our Lord. And the basic meaning of the psalm is is pretty transparent. And I want to read all seven verses of the psalm if you have your Bible there. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your strength will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He shall shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook in the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. 
one of the most encouraging psalms uh, recorded for our edification. What do we see here? Notice what it says, Jehovah, Yahweh, our great covenant-keeping God, even the great I Am, will do what He has promised to do. And what is that? He will accomplish redemption through His faithful Messiah, whom He will establish as a righteous, priestly judge and king of creation. He will glorify Himself by redeeming His people and judging His enemies. And His followers are adorned in holy garments, and they will freely serve Him, their reigning King. And we see Messiah's relentless pursuit of His mission will ultimately shatter all of His enemies. So, if Psalm 10 is, 110 is the most quoted psalm, Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted verse. And, and let's just look at it. And actually, maybe you might want to memorize it by the end of the day. It's quite short. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, said Yahweh, said Jehovah. So again, David, by the Spirit, invokes God's covenant name. Almighty God in all of his self-existent glory, in all of his divine perfections, in all of his redeeming love towards his people, speaks. And when he speaks, he speaks with his own absolute power and authority. And to whom does he speak? He speaks literally, Adonai, to my Lord. So we have Yahweh speaking to my Lord. Now this raises the question, who is David referring to? Well, it's interesting that our Lord himself, Christ, when he was... If you read in Matthew 22, you can see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were all setting traps for Jesus. They were asking him trick questions, trying to get him to say something politically incorrect and getting him in trouble with the, with the Romans, or to say something theologically incorrect and get him uh, tried as a heretic. And then we read, though, in Matthew chapter 22, our Lord invokes this same verse, as he confounds the Pharisees. Read with me in verse 21. Now the Pharisees were gathered together. Jesus asked them a question saying, Who do you, What do you say about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your feet, under your feet. And if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. From that day, again, if then David calls him Lord, how is he son? And no one is able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So what does Psalm 110 verse 1 reveal. I just want us to look at two things. First of all, it, look, it reveals the true divine nature of the Messiah. This verse is a key verse in understanding the true nature of Christ, our Lord. The Pharisees could not conceive of a Messiah other than one who would be the biological offspring of David. They believed in a political Messiah, uh, somebody who would come in and rescue them from those rascally Romans. 
Their Messiah was a mere man. And of course, Jesus was indeed the seed of David, the son of David, according to the flesh, but he's much more than that, isn't he? He is the divine Messiah according to his divine nature. So the question remains, if then David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? Well, this verse can only be understood and, and comprehend, comprehended correctly as if we understand it in the light of our doctrine of the Trinity, right? We believe that Christ is not only the Son of David according to the flesh, but he is the Son of God according to the Spirit of God. So we can see Christ's divine authority is demonstrated. Why? Because of his position. Where does the Lord sit? The Lord sits at his right hand. What is the right hand of God? It's the unrivaled place of power and authority and glory and majesty. So Hebrews or Psalm 110 verse 1 clearly affirms the divinity of the Messiah. Now this is picked up by the authors of the New Testament and we see that the author of Hebrews uses this same verse to prove that Christ is superior to the holy angels. There was a temptation during the early church period to worship angels. And so the author of Hebrews reveals the glory of Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. And it says this, Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and in verse 13, and to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand? Well, the answer is clearly none. So even the holy angels, which some would argue are the pinnacle, one of the highest expressions of God's creation, these beautiful, holy, celestial creatures are subordinate to Christ and worship Him. So Christ, indeed, is the fully human Son of David according to the flesh and the fully divine second person of the Godhead, the King of all creation. So what does this mean for us today? God is using this repetition to make sure that we get the true nature of the Lord. We do not get to worship the Lord according to our own theological prejudice. We have to worship Jesus as he is revealed to us. We worship him in spirit and in truth. And so to know Jesus and to worship Jesus as he is revealed is to acknowledge him as Son of David and Son of God. And you really can't plead ignorance, especially as we come into the Christmas season when the whole world stops to acknowledge the birth of Christ. And you certainly cannot be saved by some other gospel or some lesser Christ. Isn't it interesting how other religions deal with Jesus? Islam has no savior. They've reduced Jesus to a mere human prophet. Hindus see Jesus as just some 
self-realized human being among many other self-realized human beings. And yes, he's divine, but of course you're divine, I'm divine, and this floor is divine. No uniqueness of his divinity. Buddhists are actually atheistic. They don't really believe in God. They don't really need a savior. What about Mormons? Mormons teach that Jesus is just one of God's spirit children, the brother of Lucifer. You knew that, right? They certainly do not believe he was the only begotten son of God. And of course, Jehovah Witnesses reduce Jesus to a created God, some lesser God, certainly not the eternal, fully divine creator that the Bible just described. So next time, I, I like to do this because people are all the time trying to play games with you theologically. So when they say, oh, you know, w- when you get down to it, we all worship the same God. I said, well, that's great. Then why don't you join me in worshiping God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? They all run for the doors because they don't worship the Christian God. All non-biblical faiths deny the Trinity. They they deny Christ's divinity. Christians, on the other hand, we relish the Trinity. We delight in the mystery of God's incarnation as fully God and fully man. And only this gospel can save and does save sinners. So the church is right to raise her voice in undiluted adoration. In Revelation chapter 5, we're given a vision of heaven, and and it's a worshipful vision. In it, we see a glorious throne. Remember the emerald throne, and and out of that throne comes this beautiful rainbow, and around this throne is this crystalline sea, and we see angels, and we see elders, and we see these creatures, and what are they doing? They are all worshiping and singing, but who are they worshiping? They are worshiping the wounded yet triumphant Lamb of God who's seated on the throne. And they say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Christ is the rightful object of our highest praise. And we join with the host of heaven and singing, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Psalm 110 verse 1, if we understand it correctly, leads us to worship. Worship of our Christ. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. We love to see Jesus receiving the worship of which he is worthy. So not only does Psalm 10 verse 1 then give us the true nature of our Lord, it shows us the true nature of his reign. Notice, he is to reign literally until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David uses a little Hebrew idiom here, uh, and it's, it's used for emphasis. Notice he doesn't say, rule till I make your enemies your footstool. That would have communicated the truth, but not just a footstool. They are a footstool for your feet. There's emphasis here. Why? Because to be under someone's foot is to be 
utterly and totally humiliated and defeated. This is the extent of our Lord's dominion. And God wants you to know with absolute certainty that Jesus is reigning and will reign and will subdue all of his enemies. In fact, as we come into the Christmas season, let's read from Isaiah chapter 9, one of the great verses of describing the incarnation, and look in verse 7 as it speaks of the reign of Messiah, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice and to, with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forever. And I love this, for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Yahweh, Jehovah, is crushing and will crush all of Christ's enemies under his feet until they are fully and finally subjugated even to the point of casting them ultimately into the lake of fire. Is that what your Bible teaches you? This is the Christ we serve. It's interesting, in the very first sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, invokes Psalm 110, verse 1. And he asserts the lordship and dominion of Christ. Of course, the day of Pentecost, the, the, the Holy Spirit fell, the church is being birthed. The, remember, there were throngs of people that had come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and now... This rushing mighty wind comes blowing through town and now all of a sudden they see their countrymen out declaring the glories of God in foreign languages that they've never learned. Of course, this demands an explanation, right? What is going on? How does Peter explain it? He says it's simple. This is the work of the risen Christ. And he has sent the Holy Spirit. Read with me in verse 31. David being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus Christ God raised up and of all that we are witnesses. Let me read that in. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That was the punchline of the first Christian sermon ever preached. An unequivocal, unapologetic assertion of the dominion and crown rights of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus accomplished redemption and he sat down at the right hand of God and dispatched the Holy Spirit to apply the finished work of his redemption. The fact and glories uh, that, that the glories of God are being uh, declared in tongues in Jerusalem is another prophetic sign. Just as God had promised, now the gospel is going to the nations. All nations, Jews or Gentiles, all whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All nations will one day bow their knee before King Jesus. So we confess with the apostles that Christ is exalted to God's right hand. He is risen and He reigns now as Lord of all. We're not waiting for some future event in order to bring in the reign of Christ. He reigns now. And once His reign has accomplished all that the Father has intended, even the salvation of His people, then Christ returns. I know there's a lot of talk about end times out there, and it can be utterly confusing. I think we're way overthinking this, saints, because it's very clear. Read with me in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam, verse 22, all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Why? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is reigning. He is reigning now. We're not waiting for Jesus to reign. It's very frustrating sometimes to talk to people. One day in the sweet by and by, Jesus will get to reign. No, he is ruling and reigning now. He is separating the nations, the sheep from the goat. By the way, just as there was a little prophetic sign of this on the day of Pentecost, there's kind of an interesting verse. You don't hear many sermons on it. In Matthew 27, verse 52. Remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, we read this. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Jesus wasn't the only one that was raised. Some people said it was kind of the overflow. The power of his resurrection was so mighty that even the power of resurrection touched the bodies of saints who had fallen asleep and were raised and Coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Again, typological, prophetic, showing what is in store for all of us who in faith wait upon Christ's return. So the ultimate victory of the gospel and the advancement of Christ's kingdom is certain and secure. It's grounded in three things. It's grounded in Christ's perfect obedience to the Father, even to the point of His death on the cross. It's guaranteed by His resurrection, whereby God declared Him to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. And it is guaranteed by the Father's sure promise to the Son, because the Father said to the Son, Ask of Me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. How many of you think that God the Father is going to give God the Son everything He asks for? 
so we can be encouraged in that today. Again, invoking this psalm, the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, tells us a little bit of the timing. In verse 10, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 12 to 13, it says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. From that time, from the time he sat down, when did he sit down? After he ascended, he was coronated. He sat down, having made atonement for sin, and now he is ruling and reigning. So stop being discouraged by all the naysayers and the pessimists and the, and the defeatists. And, and they're, in our day, they are the majority opinion in evangelicalism. Historically, they're the minority. So we have that to comfort ourselves that we are, we're standing where the church has stood historically. But in many days, in, in our day, we see many people who are, uh, call themselves Christians who will say, well, yeah, but it just has to get worse so that Jesus can come back. They may not actually say that, but that's what they believe. Is that what we're being taught here? We're being taught that Jesus has an ever-increasing kingdom and it's growing and it's filling the earth and he's subduing it and he is successful in what he does because the zeal of God himself guarantees it. So what does this mean? Our Lord has given us the greatest message ever to declare. He is the risen Lord of all. That's comforting. We've been given powerful spiritual weapons to wield in his name. He's given us prayer, and he's given us his word. Prayer and proclamation. And even as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, praying and interceding, when we pray, we join in that intercession, and God uses even the simplest childlike prayer of faith to advance his kingdom and his righteousness. And God subdues his enemies with his word, not with the sword of Allah, not with coercion, but with the power of the convicting word of Christ that goes forth and it brings salvation to his people and it hardens his enemies. But the word of God never returns void. So we are in his name to go forth using these foolish means, prayer and proclamation. Now, before we get too high and mighty about ourselves and congratulate ourselves about how spiritual we are, let's remember, at one point in your life, you were God's enemy. I was God's enemy. And so, when we think of God subduing his enemies, the good news is he subdues them two ways. He subdues them by his grace and he turns his enemies into his children. He turns his enemies into his friends. And by the grace of God and the proclamation of the gospel, the word of God goes forth and the enemies of God are subdued by his grace. He will also subdue them in his judgment at the end. 
But thank God for his power, that his word is powerful and effective. And he can reach the people that you think are the most unreachable. The ones that, had you met me when I was 20 years old, you would have said, not elect. (laughs) Definitely not elect. I was lost. I was derelict. And yet God arrested me, convicted me, converted me, and saved me by his great grace. And you know what? If he can do it for the likes of me and the likes of you, he can do it for anyone, even that child that backslidden child that you're praying for that's breaking your heart, his gospel can reach. That, that wayward friend who's left the fold, God's word does not return void. God will subdue his enemies. Can we do one last thought? In Psalm 110, it ends with verse 7. Kind of cryptic in some respect because... Uh, it, Maybe we don't initially read it uh, properly. But I found great comfort in this verse. It says, He will drink of the brook in the way. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. It's an interesting picture of Jesus. This whole picture of Psalm 110 is Jesus as the conquering king, going forth to conquer and conquering. But what this shows us is the resolve of Jesus in his mission. Notice how it depicts it. He is not even going to leave this theater of spiritual war, even to refresh himself. He will drink of the brook, and in the Hebrew it could go one of two ways, either by the way or in the way. In the Geneva Bible, uh, they, they see it as in the way. What does that mean? As he's going forth to war, he will refresh himself as the brook comes to him, but he does not leave to go refresh himself. He is so intent on his mission that he will only find refreshment in the way of prosecuting this spiritual warfare. And notice it says, and he will lift up his head. Just, I'm, I'm automatically struck with the image. Remember with Gideon's soldiers where he sorted out the, the, the good guys from the bad guys by how they were going to refresh themselves at the river. Are they going to get down on their hands and knees and lap like an animal? Or are they going to bend down with their heads raised up and drink? This is the picture of Jesus. This is the zeal of the Lord. This is the Lord's resolute intent to see that what is promised here in Psalm 110 comes to pass. This is also described prophetically by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 7. He says this, But the Lord God helps me. This is talking about the suffering servant, the the Messiah that would come, another messianic prophecy. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. This is what Jesus did, didn't he? knowing that God had ordained that he would have to go to a cross and suffer and die for his people to redeem them. The scripture says that he set his face 
like a flint to accomplish the will of the Father. I want to ask you, I'm going to ask me, do I share the same resolve as my Lord? I think all of us in our heart of hearts resolve. We want to please the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. We want to make a difference. Why? Because God's changed our heart. Before we were Christians, we could care less, right? But now God's changed our heart. Our heart is broken when we see people who are lost. We want to see God's grace demonstrated. So let me ask you, what can one church do? What can you do? to advance the crown rights of Jesus in your community? What would be different in your community if everybody had heard the gospel personally at least one time? Don't you think some of them would come to faith? I think so. Don't you think families would be restored? Don't you think the community would be transformed as a result of the gospel of Christ as Lord of all? making an impact on your community. I know that's your desire. We've prayed that God would send revival and that God would use our witness. We have the greatest message or the greatest news that the world has ever heard, that our risen Christ is Lord of all and he is inviting sinners to come and to be made right with God and to be restored to a relationship with their creator. We cannot abandon the theater of spiritual conflict to drink from the brooks of spiritual compromise. We cannot surrender immortal souls and families and and our culture by drinking the poisonous streams of defeatism. So let us follow our Christ in wholehearted devotion and in zeal for His cause. Well, for how long, preacher? Well, until that day, (laughs) until that day when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in our final redemption, either by death or by that day when the Lord returns, when God the Son delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And by God's grace, may the zeal of the Lord perform it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the Savior. Lord, may our spiritual eyes be opened to His glory. And may we love Him and worship and make Him known as a result of our being here today. May our hearts overflow with a sense of awe in Your presence. And Lord, that we would be renewed in our commitment to witness to those that you bring across our paths. Thank you, Father, for this church and for this pastor, for the leadership here, and all that they're endeavoring to do for you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out and that you would receive glory in the salvation of souls and in the advancement of your kingdom.